It's Tuesday. You know what that means. It's time for the best and brightest moment of your week. It's time for that show you love and that show that you seek. It's time for nonsense. 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 The show. The best damn show you know. The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Under 17, not admitted without parent. I've seen some feet get loose I've had some people in my life who know just what it do I try to look for goodness even when I see bad My first beat tape I was tripping I was thinking I could be great Four track test cam In my briefcase Back when I got my Jordan Straight up out of East Bay I was just 15 With some big dreams Big shoes Big heart No big screen Big talls Big balls No big leaves Double XL Well before I spit at 16 I was tripping I was waiting for the right time I was tripping I was looking for the right place I was tripping I was searching for the right words Took a wrong turn Now my head is in the right space I was tripping I was taking all the wrong pills. I was tripping, I was writing all the wrong wrongs. I was tripping, I was writing all the right songs. Looking for a miracle, you're fucking with the right one. I've seen some souls be friendly. I've seen some feet get loose. I've had some people in my life who know just what to do. I try to look for goodness, even when I see bad. Yeah. Like a gunshot, then the fall came, and we all stopped. Never school for the fools when the sun dropped. We were having mad fun running from the young cops. I was on that low brow, thinking too much. Cynicism hit me early like the cold crush. Did the knowledge into college, and I froze up. Realized I ain't even working on my post up. Had a good shot, though. With a big chip But my shoulders would be holding to that dope shit I was thinking about rhymes I was dreaming about beats I was biding my time I was sowing these seeds I was too cold to know that I ain't old enough Too grown to know that I ain't growing up Two tones was home, so just throw it up Black Paisley is back, so just pull it up I've seen some souls be friendly I've seen some feet get loose I've had some people in my life Who know just what it is I try to look for goodness even when I see bad Rebel, Paisley Stain I got some skin so thick I was made for pain Never changed my name Just check my veins All the Wallace brave hearts I'm the next to reign I meet double Powers combined when we troubled I still lose grip and shit I still fumble Always get it back Even when I'm off track Cause I'm never off beat And I'm never on whack Goddamn How the fuck they let me get in I just showed up with a couple records Looking to spin And looking to win My cup been filled with a gin I got the juice now Too still sick with a pin sick with the keys and sick with my PC, my beats be off the meat rack for Sheezy, you see he, love the early arts, you can't see me, two-tone rebel and trust you still need me. I've seen some souls be friendly, I've seen some feet get loose, I've had some people in my life who know just what it do, I try to look for goodness, even when I see bad. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 304 of Nonsense the Show. As always, I am your host, I am your friend, I am your amigo on this journey into the absurd and the obscene and the mysterious and the hilarious. My name is Captain Nick and I am coming to you 
from the Nonsense Sound Studio in Wine Country, California. This is uh, episode four of season three of Nonsense, the show. As you guys know, we are on bi-weekly episodes now. Every two weeks you get an episode, 24 episodes in season three, and then who knows where the show is going to take us next. Maybe some big sponsors on the way, maybe a big advertising deal and a streaming platform contract who knows i sure don't but i'm looking forward to finding out what do we have for you on the show tonight well first of all we started the show off with a song that i found that i'm really digging right now it's called what it do by an artist called e double uh you should check that out i really dig that one that one is on heavy rotation in my playlist lately um otherwise what i'm bringing you tonight is what i like to call the north pole special uh, tonight, we are going to talk about, uh, this is a segment I call Good to Know. This is just general information that you should have in your head so you can pull it out at cocktail parties and uh, game nights and, you know, court sessions. I don't know. Whatever you're doing, you're going to have this information in the back of your head. You can pull it out. You're going to sound real intelligent. Your friends are going to love it. So tonight, on the very first Good to Know segment, we're going to tell you a little bit about the North Pole. What is it? What are the stories about it? What's the science behind it? What do you need to know so you can be reasonably well-versed about the North Pole? We're going to get into that in our first segment tonight. That's going to be segment number one. Uh, Our second segment, we're going to dive a little bit into some mythical creatures. Believe it or not, the mythical unicorn has a connection to the North Pole. We're going to talk about that in segment number two. When I tell you everything you need to know about the mythical, magical, horned beast, the unicorn. After that, we're going to dive into the Epic Feats segment. I'm going to tell you about the very first documented uh, group of people to reach the North Pole. That's right. It's the North Pole Adventure Crew, the Plastaid Expedition. We'll talk about that in segment three and then close it right back out with uh, segment four, which is the 39th entry into the Captain's Film Institute, which is my personal private repository for the greatest films in cinema history. Uh, The only criteria for being in the Captain's Film Institute is I have to enjoy the movie watch it multiple times and feel like talking about it when it comes time to record an episode tonight's entry into the captain's film institute entry number 39 is of course the ben stiller classic secret life of walter mitty stay tuned for that um my favorite line in that uh, e-double song what it do looking for a miracle you fucking with the right one I love that. You want to find a miracle, you know who to talk to. That's right, motherfuckers, it's Captain Nick. A lot of things going on in life. It's been very eventful lately. Uh, I went this week on a little road trip with my beautiful girlfriend, Maggie. We drove down to uh, Carmel, Monterey, checked out the aquarium, went to the coast, visited Point Lobos. We ate some expensive meals. We drank some delicious wine. We had a very, very wonderful time indeed. Uh, So that was a lot of fun. Came back, dealt with some work stuff. Uh, Regrettably, I have to report to you that I am no longer the acting count of Buena Vista Winery. Uh, unfortunately, I was not able to work out a deal with uh, with the management folks over there. There were some uh, just a few things that we just uh, weren't quite seeing eye to eye on, and uh, gave them as many chances as I could, but we just couldn't figure it out. So I am back on the market. Going to take a couple weeks off. Going to catch up on some shows. Get the house cleaned up. Get a little exercise. Take a nap or two, and then uh, back to the job hunt. Couple opportunities presented, but I'm always looking for more. So if you're a listener of Nonsense the Show and you have a job uh, opening that you think I would be good for, we're talking sales, we're talking VIP, we're talking customer service, we're talking uh, anything creative, performance based, tour guides, anything like that, you know who to talk to. Voiceover work, writing work, you want a personalized podcast recorded just for you that you can decide to share or not share, you let me know. I'll record it for you. You tell me your topics. I'll write a damn show for you every single week. Um, all right, guys, that's enough of talking about my bullshit. Let's dive in to what we're here to do tonight. The business of nonsense. Let me find my computer cursor. Got it. Segment number one tonight is a good to know segment. Let me go ahead and just correct my notes here because I was calling this a legendary place, which it is. But I think the expedition or the, uh, the information here is more general knowledge you need to have. And so, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, sip a rum for the working man. Mm-mm. Delicious. Ooh, it stings the nostrils. Uh, Tonight, uh, I am once again drinking my beautiful Diplomatico Reserva Exclusiva. 
I'm going to have to go to the alcohol store and buy some more rums here soon because I am getting low on my favorite Showtime beverage. And so, ladies and gentlemen, what do you need to know about the North Pole? Well, besides Santa Claus, what comes to mind when you think of the North Pole? A giant red and white pole sticking out of the ice somewhere? An enormous magic rock that draws the needles of every compass on Earth? Maybe a bunch of brave expeditioners mushing sled dogs ahead toward an arbitrary point on the globe in a bid for adventure tale immortality. Yeah, pretty much. Me too. But there's a whole lot more to know about the North Pole. For instance, did you know? Well, for instance, what is the North Pole? What specifically is it? Where is the North Pole exactly? If you wanted to go there, how would you get there? And who, in fact, was the first person to reach it? And of course, are we sure? Are we really sure about the answers to any of these questions? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I have the answers for you tonight because I am Captain Nick and this is Nonsense the Show, so let's dive in and find out. First of all, what is the North Pole anyway? Well, it's kind of a trick question because there are four North Poles, five if you count the town of North Pole, Alaska. First of all, there's true geographic north, easy for me to say, which is where the lines of longitude converge at the top of the world. This is the point explorers seek to stab with their flagpoles, geographic north. But then there's also magnetic north, which is what your compass is so intent on pointing towards, and which marks where the Earth's magnetic field shoots vertically from the planet. This is also called the dip pole, since the field dips down into the Earth at that point. Third, there is the geomagnetic North Pole, which is a combination of the two. It sounds like it's basically the extension of the, true, uh, of the North Pole's magnetic field into space. Also, something called the instantaneous North Pole, which, as far as I can tell, is the spot that corresponds to a point at which lines representing the rotational axis of the Earth would hit the planet's surface. So essentially, if you look at a globe where the, uh, the globe is connected to the stand... Answering where exactly the North Pole is can be tricky because where true north sits permanently, uh, while true north sits permanently where longitude lines meet, magnetic north moves around quite a bit, actually. Perhaps you've heard conspiracy theorists rail on about the magnetic poles flipping and all hell breaking loose. Well, we're actually long overdue for the flipping part, not to mention the, the hell breaking loose, which... If you've looked at the news lately, you can see that happening. The Earth's molten core sloshes around constantly, which creates the magnetic field in the first place. The sloshing also shifts the field around a bit. Of course, this is, uh, you're talking, what, Newton's third law? An object in motion stays in motion. There's an equal and opposite reaction for all this bullshit. I'm not a physicist. All I'm saying is that sloshing creates magnetic energy. Um... The sloshing also shifts the field around quite a bit. All of that movement is bound to have an effect. Magnetic north is right now... Excuse me. Magnetic north is right now booking it from its current spot in the Canadian, Canadian Arctic northwest towards Siberia at a clip of about 55 kilometers per year. That's a lot of distance. 55 kilometers per year, magnetic north is actually moving. 800,000 years ago, the poles were reversed. If you stood facing due north holding a compass at that time, the the needle would indicate you were facing south. Geophysicists think that those pole reversals happen every 200 to 300,000 years, so since it's been 800,000 years since it's last happened, we're really on some borrowed time. It's a lot of science shit to say, just wait, it's coming. But don't worry, because here's the cool part. It's not like flicking a switch and swapping the poles around. It's not going to happen instantaneously. The magnetic field gradually shifts around, and the poles will pop out at sporadic latitudes until they are completely reversed, essentially going in slow motion. Thankfully, we'll all be long dead the next time it happens, so we don't really have to worry about the freaky compass behavior while that's going on. Now, finally, nobody is exactly sure which expedition actually first made it to the geographic North Pole but we do have a pretty good idea. For years and years and years, Robert Peary, who claimed to reach the pole in 1909, was lauded as the first explorer to earn that distinction. But his claim has since been discredited, because experts decided he couldn't possibly have covered the distances he claimed to uh, on sledges. The New York Times even published a correction in 1988 to their original report from 79 years earlier that Peary had conquered the North Pole. A man named Frederick Cook claimed to have reached the pole a full year before Peary, though his report is also considered to be a hoax. So, Captain Nick, 
Who was first? Well, awesomely, it was just a group of regular workaday guys from Minnesota who heroically rode snowmobiles from Duluth, Minnesota to the North Pole in 1968 with zero prior Arctic expedition experience. The Plasted Expedition, as it's come to be known, named for Ralph Plasted, the insurance salesman who organized the trip, started out as a drunken wager in a Duluth bar. Isn't that how all the best stories start? Uh, You'll hear more about that expedition later in the show, so stay tuned if you're interested in hearing about uh, the North Pole Adventure crew. Now, did you know that one of the creatures that inspired myths about unicorns comes from the North Pole? The narwhal, a small whale that lives in the chilly waters of the Arctic Circle, has a six to ten foot long tusk, a trait that earned it the nickname Unicorn of the Sea. Back in the 16th century, they were often believed to possess magical powers that could be used to cure diseases. Demand was very high, and legend has it that Queen Elizabeth I shelled out 10,000 pounds to get her hands on her very own narwhal tusk. Nowadays, narwhal populations are on the decline due to hunting, climate change, and overfishing of halibut, which is their main source of food. We'll talk more about the uh, the mythical unicorn later in the episode as well. And finally, when we talk about the North Pole, we cannot skip talking about one very important resident. That is, of course... Santa Claus. The North Pole has become synonymous with Christmas traditions surrounding Santa Claus. Every year, millions of children post letters to the North Pole and Christmas festivals all over the country recreate a wintry wonderland complete with elves and reindeer and icicles. The fact that there isn't a landmass located at the North Pole hasn't detracted from the enduring legends that place Santa's magical workshop in that timeless wintry landscape. Here's a look at how this legend developed and how the North Pole came to be Santa's fabled home. Santa Claus, as he is recognized in modern times, evolved from the visions of three 19th century writers and artists. First, Washington Irving in his History of New York introduced the Dutch version of St. Nicholas to the American imagination in 1809. This legendary figure then became immortalized in 1823 in Clement Clark Moore's poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas which is more popularly known as the night before Christmas. But it was illustrator Thomas Nast who gave visual form to the lore, publishing a series of sketches of Santa himself in Harper's Weekly from the 1860s to the 1880s. It is here that the Santa as he is known today emerged with his rotund grandfatherly appearance and his kind, gentle face. However, it was not until Coca-Cola released a series of advertisements in the 1930s that the red suit became iconic as well. Nast is also largely credited with establishing Santa's official residence at the North Pole. Of course, the association of a wintry dwelling with St. Nicholas is steeped in the traditions of those legendary figures most closely associated with modern Santa. For instance, in some European traditions, Father Christmas was said to live in the Lapland province in Finland. Nevertheless, Nast published four different... um, (laughs) Sip a rum! My brain is already moving faster than my mouth can operate. Let's sew that some bitch now with some alcohols. Nevertheless, Nash published four different drawings starting in 1879 showing a girl posting a letter to Santa Claus in the North Pole. Santa sitting on a box inscribed St. Nicholas North Pole, a map tracing Santa's journey from the North Pole to the U.S. and, of course, Santa in his North Pole workshop. The legend of Santa's home at the North Pole was further solidified in a poem called Santa Claus and His Works by George P. Webster, published in 1869 alongside a color uh, color collection of Nash's illustrations. Here, Webster wrote about Santa's home near the North Pole in a land of ice and snow. The North Pole has emerged as a central part of the Santa Claus legend, for children all over the North Pole is envisioned as a wondrous place that contains all the magic of Christmas. And that is our story on the North Pole here today. We will be diving deeper into some of the pieces we talked about. First of all, unicorns, and then, of course, the North Pole Adventure crew. But before we get to that, we have to dive into this week's edition of the Schmoop Song. Chosen by Maggie tonight, we are starting with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. This is the adventures of Rain Dance Maggie. We'll see you in just a couple of minutes to talk about some unicorns. Little 
Ladies and gentlemen, the advance, uh, mm-hmm, the adventures of Rain Dance Maggie by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You know, I have noticed in my time that the Red Hot Chili Peppers tend to be a little bit of a divisive band, and that's kind of strange to me. Uh, people who dig the, the, the peps, uh, they love the peps. People who don't dig the peps, man, they really don't dig the peps. Um, so I guess I'm curious, how do you feel about the Red Hot Chili Peppers? Go ahead and shoot me an email, beardandbones at gmail.com, B-E-A-R-D, the letter N, B-O-N-E-S. Uh, shoot me an email, tell me what you think about the Red Hot Chili Peppers, tell me what you think about the North Pole, tell me what you think of nonsense this show, tell me what you think about the events of the world. Um, write to me like a diary, tell me what you got going on, send me letters, ask me for advice, tell me a story, if it's cool, I'll put it on the show. Love to find more audience interaction, know some more about you guys since I share so much about me on this very show. 
Um, and by the way, if you're interested in supporting Nonsense, the show, if you're a loyal listener, you want to throw me a couple of bucks per episode to uh, to help me keep the lights on around here since I am newly unemployed, uh, you can do that at patreon.com backslash nonsense the show. You get charged once a month. I will charge you for two episodes per month. Uh, you can pick whatever amount you want to support me to per episode. Um, any 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 little bit helps. So uh, throw me a couple of bucks. Make me a happy camper. I'll be thrilled. I'll say your name on the air like I do Alan Fletcher and Brittany Stevens and my mom. Hi, mom. Uh, we could talk about Milgara. We could talk about Chauncey Onion. We could talk about all the beautiful people. Um. All right. Kyle Davis. How you doing, buddy? Hope you're doing well. Tell your dog I say hello. Coming up next on this episode of Nonsense the Show, patreon.com backslash nonsense the show. Uh, leave a like, leave a review, leave a comment on uh, your favorite podcast platform. Uh, Apple Podcast is the best. That's the one where most of you guys are listening on. So if you could do me a favor and just leave me a review. Throw a couple stars up there. Write a sentence or two about what you like about the show. It really helps out with getting me moved up the rankings, getting me more visibility on the platform, and hopefully finding new listeners. Not to mention, why haven't you told your friends about Nonsense the Show? Why haven't you posted about it on your social media and tagged me at Beard and Bones, B-E-A-R-D, the letter N, B-O-N-E-S? Enough bullshit. Let's talk about unicorns. The mythical unicorn is more than just glitter and rainbows. Unicorns occupy a strange position in popular culture. In fantasy narratives, they're often pure, noble animals who save the hero in their darkest hour. Yet a recent splurge in the beauty industry saw unicorns splashed across holographic makeup lines with brushes shaped like spiraled horns. And of course, unicorns are a perennial favorite with children. Behind the glitter and rainbow stands a somewhat spiritual creature, at times both gentle and ferocious, mysterious and medieval. You'll also find unicorns aplenty on coats of arms and family crests. The unicorn is even Scotland's national animal. But where do they come from? And is there any possibility that they ever actually existed? Let's find out. In around 398 BC, Greek physician Cetesius wrote about unicorns. He did so while based in Persia, though his tales were about the unicorns of India. Note, he'd never actually been to India himself. <laughs> he gathered tales from travelers, and he also wrote about dog-headed men and griffins. As Chris Lavers points out, the tales are so fantastical, we have two options. First, we can assume he was a liar. Or second, he just wrote down the stories travelers told him making him simply gullible. Cetesius tells us the unicorn has a white body, a dark red head, dark blue eyes, and a white, crimson, and black horn. The Persians, the Greeks, and Pliny the Elder alike all argued for the existence of the unicorn in India. Julius Caesar later decided it lived in Celtic forests. Pliny the Elder described the unicorn as having the body of a horse, the head of a stag, the feet of an elephant, the tail of a boar, and a three-foot-long black horn. Matt Simon notes that an Indian rhinoceros also has feet and a tail to match this particular description. So, was the original unicorn a rhinoceros after all? When we move into the 12th century, the bestiaries ditched Pliny's hybrid model. They describe the unicorn as being very small, the size of a goat's kid. Yet this description clearly didn't stick, as a famous example of Middle Ages weaving can attest. The Unicorn Tapestries, now held at the Cloisters in New York, is a series of seven tapestries dating to around 1500. In it, hunters set out to capture a unicorn. The tapestries are mostly accurate in a botanical sense, yet the designers and weavers ignored the seasons by juxtaposing plants in flower that ordinarily bloom at different times of the year. Thus, each plant is revealed in its prime, producing an enchanting ensemble of the best that nature has to offer. This creates a lush and abundant paradise through which the unicorn can move. In one tapestry, a snake has cursed the water of the forest. The unicorn uses its magical powers to remove serpent's venom from water, enabling birds and beasts of the forest to quench their thirst safely. By making the water safe again, the unicorn comes to re represent none other than Christ himself. These tapestries are also known by the name The Hunt of the Unicorn. In the early Christian era, people believed the unicorn had to be a ferocious beast, in part thanks to Cetesius' descriptions of the unicorn's ferocity. Hunters couldn't capture a unicorn, and he could only be tamed by a virgin maiden. 
The maiden would sit quietly until the unicorn found her. In her presence, the beast became tame, even laying its head in her lap. At this point, the hunters could leap from uh, concealment and capture or kill the unicorn. In the unicorn tapestry, the maiden looks away at the gory moment. Is she unwilling to acknowledge her role in its death? In these legends, the unicorn becomes associated with purity. This is added to their mysterious, untamed allure. Their ferocity and fighting depicted in the unicorn tapestries as the unicorn fights off the hounds becomes its strength and its power. The purity of the unicorn is why rulers often adopted them as a symbol. They could celebrate their beneficence in providing their citizenry with a safe and happy existence. There's a unicorn on Florence's Neptune fountain indicating the safety of the water within. Sip of rum for safe drinking water. In one bit, uh, hang on. There's also something of the outsider about the unicorn. Paul Clayton Lee notes that its religious history goes back to the time of the Great Flood, when Talmudic interpreters say the beast was too large to fit into Noah's Ark, and so had to be towed along by a rope tied to its horn. In one biblical tale, Adam named the unicorn before any other animal. When he and Eve left the Garden of Eden, the unicorn, mm, the unicorn went with them. Here, the unicorn adds loyalty to its list of virtues. Unlike Adam and Eve, the unicorn could return to the garden every century. By eating the vegetation and drinking the water, it renewed its strength. Yet its greatest quality was perhaps the magical property of its magical horn. People believed the horn could purify liquids, and the purified liquid could cure anyone who had been poisoned. Scholars also believe this magical liquid could cure epilepsy, a condition Joan of Aragon suffered from. This particular king loved hunting, but he was also interested in astrology and alchemy. He was also desperate to own a unicorn's horn. Scholars have indicated Joan's interest in possessing a horn as being symptomatic of his flightiness as a monarch. Yet Michael A. Ryan explains that it also shows an attempt to exercise his authority. He was willing to throw the might of the state behind his desire to own the horn. In the, middle of, in the medieval era, the fantastic or monstrous did not queen. Uh, mm. <laughs> yep, we're hitting that point in the show, ladies and gentlemen. Halfway through, the words are getting hard. In the medieval era, the fantastic or the monstrous did not seem quite so far away as it does today. Yet, his epilepsy means his quest for the horn doesn't quite seem so outlandish. The Count of Armagnac sent a piece of unicorn horn to Joan. He poisoned two dogs and touched one with the horn. According to reports, the dog not touched with the horn died, while the other lived. Joan went on to cure subjects who had been poisoned. Even Nicholas Culpepper himself advocated for the medicinal powers of unicorn horn. He claimed it also provoked urine, restored vitality, and helped bring on a birth. Carolyn Turgeon points out the worshipful, worshipful Society of the Apothecaries, founded in 1617, features two unicorns on its crest. Surprisingly, many apothecaries sold powdered unicorn horn. Clearly, of course, it wasn't unicorn horn, but some horns came from narwhals, while others may have belonged to other antlered animals, such as the oryx. Yet, it wasn't just the horn that had healing properties. Hildegard of Bingen believed unicorn liver mixed with egg yolks could cure leprosy. Unless, of course, God didn't want the leper to be cured, which is a, a handy exit clause in case things don't work out. She also believed that you could wear a belt of unicorn hide to save yourself from pestilence. Who knows what animals they used as stand-ins for unicorn liver and unicorn hide. But did unicorns actually exist? An article on Belief.net explains that you can find the word unicorn in the King, King James Version of the Bible nine separate times. Later translations refer instead to a wild ox. No one really knows what the original Hebrew word re'em referred to. Some scholars think a wild ox or an oryx is more likely. Well, Matt Simon suggests the oryx, which would make sense since people sold their antlers as unicorn horns. Yet the Greeks had never seen one, so they translated re'em to monokeros, or one-horned. That became unicornus in the Latin translation of the Bible, and by the time we get to the King James Version, the translations be, uh, made up the word unicorn. They also made up the word baptism. So you can see that as time goes on, and as cultures adopt these teachings and these writings, 
Words change. The stories change. Things change. These are not reliable sources uh, unless you're being very, very thoughtful about how you use them. Some wonder, uh, uh, correction, following this line of thinking, God, I'm off the game tonight. Following this line of thinking, unicorns really did exist, just not quite as we think of them today. Some wonder if the unicorn did once exist, but humans hunted it to extinction for its horn. Benjamin Radford notes the exploration of the globe during the Enlightenment led to a waning belief in unicorns. After all, if you keep visiting new countries and still don't find a unicorn, eventually you're going to start doubting its existence. But there is one other explanation. Tiffany Sharples relates the case of a one-horned deer in Florence in 2008, nicknamed Unicorn. A genetic mutation caused the deer's single antler. Could animals with similar abnormalities have added to the unicorn legend over the centuries? Nowadays, they're beloved by the spiritual and the New Age communities. Some practitioners provide meditations to help you contact unicorn spirit guides, while others believe unicorns exist on a, on a different plane entirely. When we're pure enough, and when we believe hard enough, we will see them again. And really, when you put it that way, it starts sounding downright religious, doesn't it? Kind of interesting. All right, let's take a look here. We have completed the second segment of the show, our Mythical Creatures segment, talking about the mythical unicorn. Two more segments to go, 36 minutes into the episode. Let's take a look at our music for a second. We do not have a song scheduled next, so let us dive right in to our next story. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what I call the main event story of the episode. This is segment number three. This, of course, is the North Pole adventure crew the first documented expedition to actually reach the north pole in duluth minnesota on the revamped boulevard fronting the industrial shores of lake superior there is an ancient bar called the pickwick over its 100 years of existence the pickwick has likely seen countless chest thumping blustery bar challenges made over stale peanuts and cheap beer but none were as important as one made on an otherwise unremarkable evening in 1966. This challenge led to one of history's greatest and frankly most unbelievable expeditions. The first indisputable documented trip to the North Pole that came just two years later. Ralph Plasted, a 39-year-old insurance salesman and high school dropout from Bruno, Minnesota, was having a beer at the Pickwick with his friend and local physician Art Ofterhide. Plasted was praising the merits of the newly released snowmobile. He'd recently ridden some 250 miles across frozen northern Minnesota on a Ski-Doo brand version of the exciting machine. Plasted and Ofterhide were chatting about a possible hunting trip in northern Canada the next spring. Ofterhide wanted to use sled dogs, while Plasted insisted on the snowmobile. Ofterhide grew tired of Plasted's boasting about the Ski-Doo and finally, the challenge. Ofterhide told Plastid he should just ride one of the damn machines clear to the North Pole if they were so fucking capable. Plastid, a man with no previous polar expedition experience, who merely liked to hunt and camp in his spare time, took Ofterhide seriously. By the following year, he'd recruited Ofterhide to join him on a mad quest. Plastid was going for the North Pole. At the time, it was thought Admiral Robert Peary had reached the North Pole in 1909. A man named Frederick Cook had also claimed to reach the North Pole in 1908. Historians have since concluded that neither man actually made it and either would have had difficulty actually knowing they'd arrived at the pole. Let's go back. Historians. <laughs> Sip a rum for being a professional broadcast production. Let's try this again, huh? Historians have since concluded neither man actually made it, and either would have had great difficulty actually knowing they'd arrived at the pole even if they had. Plasted wasn't necessarily out for the glory of first arrival. He pitched his trip to potential sponsors as only the second trip to reach the North Pole since Peary, and the first by snowmobile. His pitch worked. Plasted was supplied everything from food to whiskey to clothes and gear. He was also approached by the National Geographic Society for financial... Oh, correction. Plasted also approached the National Geographic Society for financial assistance, 
but they scoffed at the chances of an inexperienced polar explorer succeeding on such a mission. Furthermore, they didn't feel he'd bring any scientific expertise to the trip. They said nobody could just take a few cronies from Minnesota and go to the North Pole, Plaston told reporter Charles Kuralt, who joined the 1967 trip in his book To the Top of the World. I told them they could just sit there and watch me. Plastid also pitched the trip to his buddies and local regular Joes he hoped would sign on as crew. None of them were explorers or even adventurers, but something about Plastid lured them along. His friend Don Powellek, an engineer by trade, joined as a radio operator. Walt Peterson, who ran the local Ski-Doo sales office, came along as the group's mechanic. A geography teacher named Jerry Pitzel would be the navigator, and Ofterhide served as the doctor. Bombardier, the company that manufactured the Ski-Doo, agreed to supply the outfit with a handful of the machines as long as a member of the family could join. Jean-Luc Bombardier, a dashingly handsome snowmobile racer, thus came along as the lone Canadian on the expedition. The men set out on their first attempt in the spring of 1967. They made it 300 miles in one month before abandoning the mission in the midst of a terrible snowstorm. No matter. Plasted, unfazed, immediately began drawing up a plan to head out again the following spring. The expedition raised more money, hired film and, uh, filmmakers to document portions of the trip, and Plasted even convinced Pillsbury to supply them with a new kind of freeze-dried food they'd worked on for the space program. They even poached one of their food scientists who left his job on the spot to follow Plasted into the Arctic. Now what kind of charisma does this guy fucking have? A high school dropout salesman somehow managing to wrangle all of these people and convince them to go along with such a crazy idea. Amazing. Ever the promotional genius plastic presented the men with polar outfits and balls and with the Plasted Expedition logo. In late February 1968, the crew departed from Bombardier HQ in Montreal, set up base camp some 400 miles from the North Pole, and then struck out aboard their ski-doos for the second attempt at a grand adventure. Immediately, they were on the wrong course. Tools for the snowmobiles and medical supplies were forgotten at base camp. Generators had been left behind. Blizzards kept them in tents for days at a time. They were uncertain about crossing strange forms of ice they didn't recognize. Placed had arranged for aerial resupplies, but poor weather grounded their support plane, leaving them dangerously low on fuel and food. Morale plummeted just days into the voyage. And then... A massive storm threatened to end their trip just two weeks in, similar to the poor luck that befell them the previous year. Thankfully, the weather cleared, spirits improved, and Plasted and his team continued pushing north. They drove the little 15-horsepower skidoos fast when they could, hauled them over small crevasses and ice blocks when they couldn't. A month into the expedition, the group began encountering dangerously thin sections of ice and wildly unpredictable veins of black, freezing water, with only a thin crust of frost on top. Plasted decided to break the group up, sending off Hyde and Powellek back to base camp to aid in planning and to lessen the weight of the ski-doos. Pitzel, the navigator, was flown to join Plasted to direct them on the final push, constantly taking measurements with his trusty, but frozen sextant. Disaster nearly struck when the team encountered a stretch of open water that ran for miles in either direction. Seeing no other way to cross, the group gambled on waiting for an ice floe that drifted toward them to form a bridge to the other side. They gunned their snowmobiles and opened throttle when the bridge formed, the machines racing across over a thin suggestion of ice. Peterson's skidoo, however, bogged at the ice's thinnest point. Plasted, terrified, sprinted to drag his friend and the sinking machine to the frozen shore. They caught their breath and pushed on. Peterson would later cred Plasted with saving his life. By mid-April, Pitzel announced the group to the group that they were close, perhaps within just a few degrees of the pole. They moved through a few more dangerous stretches of confusing mazes of ice flows until they emerged again into a wide expanse of unbroken ice. Finally, on the morning of April 20th, an Air Force jet that was monitoring their progress roared low overhead. The pilot of the jet's voice came crackling over Plasted's radio. They were standing dead on the center of the North Pole.
Any direction they stepped would take them due south. They had actually made it. Plasted was right. His ragtag team of cronies from Minnesota had done the impossible. They were the first team to reach the North Pole with actual evidence of their arrival. Most likely, they were the first to travel there at all. Plasted died in 2008. In his obituary, the New York Times reported a quote Plasted had given years earlier about his trip. Boy, it's cold up there, he said after his return home. I don't know why anyone would want to do it again. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we dip right back into another musical break. Leading into our Captain's Film Institute segment, this is David Bowie, the incomparable Ziggy Stardust. With one of my favorite songs, this is Space Oddity. See you in a few minutes for Captain's Film Institute number 39, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Ground control to Major Tom. Sing countdown engines on Three, two, check ignition And may God's love be with you Thank you. 
ladies and gentlemen, that was David Bowie with Space Oddity. Um, that's one of those songs that, uh, you know, I think everybody has certain songs that when you hear them, they make you feel a lot of emotions. They make you feel like they might have been written just for you. You know, it's one of the magical, uh, magical things about music uh, is through music. You find out that there are strangers, people you've never met, people you will never meet, people who have problems and experiences and, uh, and fortunes and, and, and misfortunes that you will never understand. But there are people who understand you. There are people who are feeling the same things you are feeling. You are not alone in this world. Space Oddity is one of those songs for me that I love because as you think about a person making the choice to take a risk for whatever cause whether it be for fortune, whether it be for fame, whether it be for science or for humanity or for charity. This is a person who is taking a risk going to the unknown, knowing that they may never return, even though they have a wife, they have a life, they have, they have something going on here. And then when they get there, when Major Tom gets to outer space, he figures out like, oh my God, this is it. I'm home. And he decides to leave his capsule where he's safe. He decides to leave his one chance to make it home to the people that love him and the things that he loves. And he decides to take a chance. And he jumps out into space. And he leaves it all behind. I'll leave you to interpret that as you will. It is one of those things that every time I listen to it, it speaks to me no matter what part of my life I'm in, no matter what I'm going through, no matter what emotions are most prevalent in my mind. Um, that is one of those songs that I always, always can relate to and feel something strong with. And uh, that kind of goes to be said for the movie that we're going to talk about for Captain's Film Institute, entry number 39. The 2013 Ben Stiller-directed film, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Um, now, this is a remake. There was another version of this in 1957, I believe-ish. Um, this movie stars Ben Stiller, Kristen Wiig, Patton Oswalt, Catherine Hahn, Adam, uh, Adam Scott, and, of course, Sean Penn. Uh, the movie synopsis reads as such. All good things must come to an end. And sadly, as the popular American magazine Life ceases publication to focus exclusively on the online market, suddenly... The quiet daydreamer and organizer's negative asset manager, organization's negative asset manager, Walter Mitty, faces unemployment. To make matters worse for the final print issue's cover image, the famed globetrotting photographer Sean O'Connell entrusts Mitty with the epitome of his life's work, captured in a single frame that is, however, nowhere to be found. As a result, the mousy and utterly unadventurous Walter must step out of his comfort zone to venture into the unknown at the edge of the world, trying to save what's left of his reputation. Nevertheless, is he prepared to live up to the company's inspiring motto? Above all, life is a gift. What was captured inside Sean's quintessential but missing photograph? This is a movie about a man who does not feel like he is living his life. He feels like he's trapped. He feels like he's stagnant. And so he escapes through the power of daydreaming. He imagines himself as the hero in all kinds of situations, whether they be romantic or adventurous or whatever. And it's something I can relate to because as a young man, I always had aspirations much bigger than my experience or my knowledge base. And fantasy and daydream and imagination where I went to experience things and, and learn about life in ways that I wasn't able to do in reality. Now that I've lived a life where I've experienced a lot of those things firsthand, you know, the imagination isn't quite as necessary in that regard. But when I look at Walter Mitty, I think about myself at different points in my life where I was trying to find ways to become the person I always wanted to be. I was trying to find ways to be as interesting or as experienced or as world-wise as I imagined I should be. Um, this is one of those movies, again, that it's inspiring. It's beautiful, the cinematography, the soundtrack, the message that you're getting as you go all the way through it. Absolutely wonderful. So let's dive in. 
Um, as you guys know, every time we do a Captain's Film Institute entry, I talk about my favorite line, my favorite character, and my favorite scene. Um, this movie was actually a little bit harder than I expected to pick, uh, you know, to fill these categories. Um, I have uh, two multiples, actually. Two favorite lines that I've picked. The first is by Sean O'Connell, playing the photographer, uh, or, or the photographer Sean O'Connell, rather, played by Sean Penn. Um, at at a, a moment in the movie, he talks about beauty. And the, the, the sentence that really stuck out for me was that beautiful things don't ask for attention. And as you go through life, you recognize that the more somebody is demanding attention, the more somebody is seeking it out, the less they necessarily deserve it. The things that really deserve that attention, the real beauty in the world is going to get your attention no matter what. It, it can be silent about it. It's going to draw your attention just by nature of its being, by its essence. The second line that I've picked out here is by Walter Mitty. He says, to see the world, things dangerous to come to, to see behind walls, draw closer, to find each other, and to feel. That is the purpose of life. To see the world, things dangerous to come to, to see behind walls, to draw closer, to find each other, and to feel. That is the purpose of life. I don't need to editorialize. That says everything. My favorite character in the movie is, of course, Walter Mitty. There's so much to relate to in him, and I can clearly remember moments in my life where my daydreams had to fill in for the life experience I wished I was having or thought I needed to become the man I wanted to be. Walter Mitty is an, em mm, Walter Mitty is an eminently relatable character to me. My favorite scene, uh, I picked two on this one. Uh, the first scene is when Walter leaves the bar to jump aboard the departing helicopter to the sounds of Kristen Wiig singing Space Oddity. It's a scene which always inspires me. It's the moment of truth where you have to make a tough and scary decision which you have to trust will get you where you want to be in life. Every time I watch this scene of him racing out of the bar to her singing to him, chasing the drunken helicopter pilot, pausing, thinking, considering, running through all the options, the pros and the cons, the risks and the rewards, and then finally deciding, fuck it, I'm going for it, diving aboard that helicopter and saying, I'll figure it out as I go. I love that moment. And that's a moment in my life I've experienced on multiple occasions. In fact, I just experienced it uh, in the last couple of days where you have to pause. You have to evaluate where you are going in life and where you want to be going in life. You have to evaluate where you are and what's going on and what value you're gaining from it. You have to decide if this is where you want to be and whether the tough, scary, difficult decision is the right choice for you or not. And more often than not, in my opinion and in my experience, the more a choice scares me, the more necessary and the more important it is. I love that scene. The second scene that I've picked is Walter longboarding in Iceland to Far Away by a band called Junip. The cinematography and the music pair so well, so well together. It's absolutely glorious. Let me go ahead and just pull this up for you for just a minute because I want to show you a little bit of this song. Um, so I heard the original of this song in the Red Dead Redemption game by Jose Gonzalez. I'm just going to give you a little bit of this just so you can feel what it's like. Walter Mitty up across these grand cinematic landscapes of Iceland, longboarding down windy mountain roads. Just listen. Feel it for a minute, all right? Close your eyes. Here we go. In front of a runaway train Just to feel alive again Pushing forward through the night Aching just a little sight It's so far, so far away It's so There you go. That's just a little taste of Junip singing Far Away. Take a look at The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Soundtrack It is well worth your time. Um, so those are my favorite scenes, my favorite lines, and my favorite character for The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Let's dive into some fun facts I've found about the film. The drunken helicopter pilot jokes that there are like eight people in Greenland. When Walter goes to Greenland in the film, if you count, 
he only sees eight different people. Fun little fun little piece of uh, filmmaking in that. Uh, Life Magazine was an American photojournalism magazine. It was published weekly from 1936 to 1972 as an intermittent special from 1972 to 1978 and as a monthly from 1978 to the year 2000. From 2004 to 2007, it was a weekly newspaper supplement published by Time, Inc., and in its heyday, it occupied five floors of the Time and Life building in Midtown Manhattan. George Story appeared as a baby in the first picture on the first issue of Life, published November 23, 1936. He died on April 4, 2000, just days after Life announced it would no longer be published as a monthly. Uh, Local Icelandic media reported on the willingness of residents and municipalities to assist in the film production. A townhouse in Stikshamur, on the Snellfusness uh, Peninsula. Ooh, wow, I nailed that on the first try. Holy fuck. <laughs> uh, a townhouse in Stixamore on the Snellfusness uh, Peninsula in the west was painted black. The inhabitant, uh, inhabitants of Seosfjord in East Iceland agreed to keep a low profile for a day so that they could film the scenes they needed. As of 2014, Papa John's has no restaurants in Iceland. A bakery in the West Iceland town of Borgarns was converted into a Papa John's for the movie. This is a moment when I should let you know that lately I've been watching a television show called Shack Life on HBO Max. I think it might have aired on TNT originally. It's just Shaquille O'Neal being Shaquille O'Neal, and it's really fun because Shaquille O'Neal is a good fucking person. So check out Shaq Life. Uh, when Kristen Wiig did, uh, wow, Kristen Wiig did sing David Bowie's Space Oddity in the Greenland bar scene, Greenland, not Iceland. She admits she cannot play guitar. She took lessons before filming so she could strum and move her hands believably. So she took lessons just so she could fake playing guitar believably. (laughs) Uh, When Walter arrives in Greenland and asks if there are any cars available, they tell him that they have a blue one and a red one. Walter tells the man, I'll take the red one. In the movie The Matrix from 1999, Morpheus tells Neo, you take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed and you believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Now, I was never a big Matrix guy, admittedly. I remember the hype when it came out. I remember everybody talking about it. I definitely saw the movie, but I never really got it. I never really got into it the way other people did. I remember seeing the second Matrix movie and being totally confused by it, and I never went back. Maybe it's time for me to go in and check those films out again. Maybe I'll understand it a little better now. (laughs) A little smarter, a little more world-wise. Now, typically, we like to talk a little bit about alternate casting. For The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Jim Carrey, Owen Wilson, Mike Myers, and Sasha Baron Cohen were all considered for the role of Walter Mitty. I think all of them would have been great, but it would have been a very different movie which, with each and every one of them. I think with Ben Stiller in there, um, it really worked out well. Being the director as well, he was able to make sure it matched his vision. Um, the shark scene after Walter jumps out of the helicopter is both terrifying and exciting to me. As I was watching the movie, I added this in because I love, love, love that scene. Uh, when one of the men shout to Walter Mitty when he's running for the bike, the man shouts... Stay gold, pony boy! Stay gold! This is, of course, a reference to S.E. Hinton's teen novel, The Outsiders, which is one that I remember being uh, uh, really uh, impactful to me when I was a student and read that in school. I need to watch the movie again. I haven't seen that in quite a while. Um, Okay, ladies and gentlemen. That's The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. That's the Captain's Film Institute for this episode. Uh, Captain's Film Institute number 39 for this episode number 304 of Nonsense the Show, which I will be calling the North Pole Special. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I hope you guys have enjoyed. Um, Obviously, you can tell I'm in a little bit of an introspective place. The last uh, week or so has been a little bit difficult professionally. Had to make some hard choices. Had to deal with some... uh, some confusing situations, and unfortunately, that has led to me leaving my job. I don't know what is going to come next. It has certainly changed my plans for the future, and it was uh, a little hard to turn down the offer they made for me, quite frankly, uh, because financially it was just absurdly good. Um, 
the fact of the matter is, though, that I am Captain fucking Nick, and this is nonsense to show in one way or the other. I am going to do what I think is right. I have trust in myself that I will find the next opportunity. I will find something to pay those bills and keep life exciting, keep me growing and moving towards my goals. And as we close out the show tonight, ladies and gentlemen, all I can do is thank you being here thank you for joining me once again leave a review tell your friends check us out on patreon.com backslash nonsense the show i will see you again in two fucking weeks for another episode of nonsense the show goodbye i love you Is getting a little dodgy in the middle part, but then that finale. <laughs> wow! Fuck this shit, I'm out. Mm-mm. Fuck this shit, I'm out. No thanks. Don't mind me. I'ma just grab my stuff and leave. Excuse me, please. Fuck this shit, I'm out. Nope. Fuck this shit, I'm out. Alright then. I don't know what the fuck just happened, but I don't really care. I'ma get the fuck up out of here. Fuck this shit, I'm out. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds.